We will be in 1 John chapter 1 again today. So you can be making your way in your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning and you'd like one to, to use or to take home with you, there's some on this table right over here. And you can use one or take it home or both this morning. This morning, we're going to be talking about light. So... Um, that's one of the three big things that John hits on in this book, in the book of First John. Light and life and confidence. And so today is, is about light. I do want to just kind of recap a little bit from last week. We talked last week because at the very beginning of this letter, in the first four verses, John the Apostle, he drives home this particular point that was proving to be a stumbling block to people in his day. But if you can believe it, and I think probably you can, studies show that it's just as much a stumbling block today in 2020. And we're talking about the incarnation, God with us, God becoming man, having flesh and dwelling among us. John was insistent that he was part of a group of people that heard and saw and touched Jesus personally in the flesh. He was a real person. They didn't all ascend to this some higher spiritual plane of enlightenment in order to know and understand Jesus. They knew him for real. In person. Geographically, literally, Jesus was born not far from them. Close by. They could trace his heritage they could talk to his parents. They could give him a big old hug. He was real, and they knew it. He was fully man. But he was also fully God. And John was excited to proclaim that both of those things together in this book of First John. Eternal life, he says. The eternal life which, which, was, which was with the Father and was made manifest to them. How many of you guys know what Ligonier Ministries is? Maybe you know better R.C. Sproul. Uh, that was the ministry that, that he kind of founded. They do, I just found this out this week. I got an email Monday morning about this very thing. They do, an, they do a um, every other year survey in America. And they call it, um, I think it's some kind of theology survey. But they ask people from around the country... A number of different theological questions and they say, do you agree with this or do you not? And so they're, they're not just picking certain people out. They're talking to all kinds of different backgrounds, Christians, non-Christians. And they're asking them what they believe about the Bible, about God, about those things. This year they partnered with Lifeway and they polled 3,000 people in the country. And some of the statistics, and I'm not a big statistic guy, but it just... If I believed in irony or things being coincidence, I would say this is a major coincidence after what we talked about last week. 52% of Americans believe that Jesus was a good teacher and nothing more. This was done in March of this year, the survey. 52% of Americans. That means over half of our country deny the incarnation. Do not believe that Jesus was God. 630 of those 3,000 people 
claimed to be evangelical Christians. Okay, so they would agree with statements like uh, they believe that the Bible is the highest authority in their life. They would tell others about Jesus, that the cross is the only way to get to heaven, those sorts of things. Of that group of evangelicals, 30% also believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but not really God. What might be even, I think, more disturbing than that is within this group, 65% agreed with the statement that said Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Created by God. Now that doesn't sound all that off at first until you get into it and so you start thinking, wait a second, what did, we, what did John just say at the beginning of 1 John and at the beginning of his gospel? The word was with God at the beginning. The eternal, with the eternal Father. Now, I, I want to believe that these numbers would be significantly different in a place like maybe Pike County, um, where we're sort of still behind in some ways, in good ways. Um, but I, I have a sinking suspicion that it's not that far off from our area here. And this should concern us. 44% of respondents in this survey agreed that Jesus was both God and man, but that when he walked the earth, he still committed sins just like everybody else. Only 41% held the biblical perspective that Jesus was both God and man and remained sinless. This just shows us, this tells me that the church... Our families, we need to be crystal clear on what we believe about the person and work of Jesus Christ. We cannot just sit back and think, we've got it. Our culture understands this. Because obviously, not only does our culture not understand it, but I'm afraid that it looks like our churches may not really understand this very well either. One of the uh, chief academic officers at Ligonier Ministries about this survey pointed this out as the culture around us increasingly abandoned it abandons its moral compass professing evangelicals are sadly drifting away from god's absolute standard in scripture it's clear that the church does not have the luxury of idly standing by this is a time for christians to study scripture diligently engage confidently with people in our culture and witness fearlessly to the identity and saving work of jesus christ in the gospel And I agree with that wholeheartedly. I'm not kidding. I received this email just hours after we preached about the incarnation last week. About the importance of God being both divine and being flesh. Being man. I said this last week, but I think it bears repeating. In light of this, if Jesus isn't fully man, and if Jesus is not also fully God, then we are of all people most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that. Do we remember what Jesus himself claimed in all of this? We can't forget that. He claimed to be God. He took on the title of I am. And, and don't, don't fall into the, the lie that they didn't really know what he was saying at the time. They absolutely knew what Jesus was saying. Why do you think they drove him to the cross? Why do you think they nailed him to the tree? They knew exactly what he was getting at and they hated him for it. If Jesus claimed to be God but wasn't, then he couldn't be a great teacher because he was a liar. Right? 
C.S. Lewis has this whole train of argumentative thought, which is really interesting. But he says Jesus was either a lunatic, a liar, and there's another one that I just failed to remember. Lord. Or he's Lord. Thank you. The most obvious of all. He can't be all of those. He's, he, and if he claims to be Lord and he's not, then he's either a liar or a lunatic. But if he is true to what he said he is, then we have to look at him as the Lord. What John is teaching here holds enormous weight. And I don't want us to miss that. We also need to be clear and determined in our resolve to teach our kids, to teach our churches, biblical Christology, biblical theological foundation of who Christ is and what he has done. In our text today, which we're going to read in just a moment, John continues with this kind of discourse on the nature of God as seen in his son Jesus. But he starts into these if-then statements. And I just, just before we read, I just want to put this out there. You probably read this before, but he gets a little bit personal. John does. He kind of starts to get in our faces about it with these if-then statements. I think you'll see what I mean. If you're not already there, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let's pray together. God's blessing on this word. Lord, we don't like comparing ourselves to you because we see who we really are when we are held up to your light the light of truth we'd rather compare ourselves to other sinful people around us in order to feel better about ourselves and we do that but lord i pray that you would help us to compare ourselves in a biblical way by your goodness and not our own which is failing, which is like filthy rags, you've told us. Show us today in your light that you have given grace to repent and turn from the darkness that has taken up the residence in our hearts. For everyone who believes, you give us grace to be free from that. So help us to be honest about ourselves this morning, about our sin, and to not make you out to be a liar by denying it. Humble us in that way, Lord, as we've already sang this morning. Cleanse us from our sin and cause us to walk in the light as you are in the light. In Christ's name, amen. So here's the message. John just says it right here. Verse 5. Here's the message that they've heard from Jesus and that John is excited to proclaim to his listeners, to his readers. He says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So just let that sink in for a moment. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This is really the foundation 
of what John is going to continue saying in his letter. God is light. He's perfect. He's set apart both morally and spiritually. And so if we believe anything about God, we have to first believe this very thing. In God, there is no sin at all. There's no darkness in God at all. This sounds really basic, and you may be thinking, okay, yeah, obviously, there's no sin in God. All of Christian doctrine hangs on this truth. All of Scripture hangs on this truth. If God lies, then why do we obey His Word? Then why do we believe what it says about His Son? If God is capable of deception or wrongness, then everything else gets thrown off kilter and out of whack. And so we have to start here. If God sins or if he is unjust at all or if he's imperfect in any way, then there's darkness in him. And so this would be a lie right here because it says there's none. There's no darkness in God. How could we trust a God who sins? He would be just like you and me in that way. He'd not be worthy of our praise and adoration if he sins. If there's darkness in him. But I think also the opposite would also be true. If there is no darkness found in God. If there is no sin in him. Then he is worthy of our praise and our adoration. If God is unlike us in sinless perfection. Then we have to now adjust our lives to fit into what he says. Not to think that we're going to put him in this place where he does what we want. It's the other way around. The word light is used almost 300 times in Scripture. And it points to the perfection and the power of God. Especially here, His knowledge and His revelation and His purity. Now we still use this same kind of language talking about light today. Think about these phrases. When we talk about someone being in the dark, what do we mean? They don't understand. They don't have the knowledge or understanding to, to get it. You don't know what's going on. How many of you guys have said this? Well, then a light went on in my head and I understood it. So we have, we've gained the knowledge. We understood something important. Uh, morally, we could say, well, they're just in a really dark place right now. You guys know what that means. And we say that sort of thing. On, on a more positive side, husbands, we say about our, our, our wives, we say, well, they just light up my life, right? Yes, they do. Amen. (laughs) So John here is using a contrast between darkness and light. He's already pointed to who's the light here, right? So where do we fall on the scale of light and and darkness? If we're going to think correctly about God and about Jesus at all, then we have to also, I think, think correctly about sin. Okay, the darkness that's being referred to here. If you, I I really think that you can find out a lot about what a person believes if you find out what they understand about sin. What do they believe about Jesus? We'll find out what they believe about sin. We live in a culture that downplays sin at every opportunity, right? This is... I think really just following the the history of mankind, if you go back to to the history, biblical history especially. But we like to just excuse, we relabel it nowadays. There are churches that call themselves churches that you will never hear the word sin preached about. 
because we relabel it to make it easier to stomach. We say, well, that was just your mistake. That was an error. That was just a slip up or a misstep. Now, that may be true, but we've got to call it what God calls it to really understand what he thinks about it. These kinds of just rephrasings make us feel better about ourselves when in reality, that's just moving us towards pride and a hardened heart. It lessens the weight of what the Bible calls it. And the Bible puts it in very clear terms. Sin is a three-letter word. And what is the letter right in the middle? If we can place the blame on somebody else, then even if we admit our sin, we can still kind of wiggle off the hook of responsibility and accountability, right? It may not be what we see or hear initially, But when we pass the blame, when we excuse our sin or try to hide it or attempt to rationalize it, at the core, what's really happening is we're saying that the death of Jesus on the cross was unnecessary. When we downplay our sin and its effects on us and those around us and on God himself, we're living like Jesus didn't really need to die because sin isn't really that big of a deal. But if we really believe that sin eternally separates us from a holy God, even just one sin, then there was no other way to have perfect justice than for the Son of God to die in the place of sinners. The sacrifice of God's own Son was necessary for sinners to be saved. And when you see sin for what it really is, I really think you're going to immediately see your need for a Savior. This is why sin has to be a part of our gospel presentations. It has to be a part of what we proclaim is true about both God and man. We have to deal with sin. So if you hear someone, brothers and sisters, if you hear someone inviting people to follow Jesus, but they never talk about abandoning or repenting of their sin, or they talk about sin lighthearted, or in flippant ways, then they're offering a false gospel that does not save. How can someone say they want to follow Jesus and not hate their sin? It is a theological impossibility for that to take place. Even the people Jesus had mercy on and forgave in Scripture, like the woman caught in adultery, as you remember, He still commanded them to go out and sin no more. Sin was still part of the message of love and forgiveness. To minimize the effect of sin is to minimize the necessity and the sufficiency of the cross of Jesus. And we cannot do that as a church. We will not do that at this church. We'll preach Christ crucified. That's what Paul says to do. Uh, That's all he knows what to do, he says, is to preach Christ crucified. Why do we preach him crucified? Except that sin is a heinous act against God that needs salvation. John writes to those who are thinking wrongly about sin here. And he pulls no punches. He says God is light and in him is zero darkness, no darkness at all. In order to help us see the way, see sin the way that God sees it, John uses a few if-then statements. Let's look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him 
while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if we say our mouths are claiming one thing, our mouths are claiming that we have fellowship with God, but we walk in the darkness, then what? What's true of us? Well, it says that we lie. The Bible calls us liars. And it says that we're not practicing the truth. This is an evidence that we have an unresolved sin problem when we lie to others by our walk. The verb walk here refers to a continuous pattern, okay? A regular way of doing something. So if we say that God is our Father, that Christ is our brother, that we're walking in His light, and yet we continuously walk in a sinful path, then we're lying and it says that we do not practice the truth. If our lives are marked more by materialism, or seeking pleasure outside of God's boundaries, or the love of money, or just living for the here and now, as we talked about in Ecclesiastes. If our lives are marked by those things, then they're in contrast to the ways of God. We say, we tell people that we know God, but our behavior contradicts our words. So our mouths are claiming one thing, and our lives are proving another. Brothers and sisters, Jesus put it this way. Can salt water and fresh water come from the same spring? No. I think, I'm just going to put a plug in here, but I think church membership plays into this. Let me show you how, just briefly. If we say, as a body of Christ here, as the church, if we just say yes to anyone who wants to be a part of the church, to come on in. With little conversations, with little relationship, or little care about their beliefs or behavior at all. Then we are perpetuating the problem of people claiming Christianity while currently walking in darkness. Except now we've given them this false assurance that being a part of the church will save them regardless of how they live. That's not meaningful membership. That's not regenerate church membership. In fact, I wouldn't call that church membership at all. I'm not sure I would call that Christianity at all. The hope I have for our church and the hope I have for every church in our area and in our nation and in the world is that our membership lists are filled not by people we rarely see, but by people who walk the walk and are not just talking the talk. I've heard it said... That people who walk the walk don't often have time to talk the talk because they're out there walking. They're out there being busy about living like they say they believe. If, our, if we extend a church membership to someone who has no intention of changing their lifestyle in order to follow Jesus, then we have failed to honor the name of Christ in our church and in our community And as a church, collectively, we need to repent. Biblical church membership instead opens us up to correction, to realignment. You know what I mean when I say realignment? Setting us back where we need to be. It opens us up to brothers and sisters who lovingly come alongside of us and say, I care about you so much that I've noticed that there might be something inconsistent in your life. But I'd love to sit down and talk and pray about together. 
There's no question. It's way easier to see something and just let it go than to have an awkward conversation with someone. It's easier. Trust me. But is it right? Is it good? Is it loving towards that person? Now, to clarify, this is not permission to just go around accusing everyone of sin and judging everybody in arrogance, pretending like you don't have your own problems as well. Jesus dealt with that very thing when he talked about the log and the splinter. Notice he didn't say not to judge. He just said, remove your own sin so that you can judge. You can see it properly. But in the context of the body of Christ, we're absolutely called to help keep one another accountable to walking in the light. John goes on to say in verse 7, you can look at this with me, that if we are walking in the light, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, number one, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Wow. Do you have a genuine and regular fellowship with the church body? Do you participate in the life and ministries of the church? If you claim to be walking in the light, you will. Are you confident that you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ? If you walk in the light, you can be sure of it. Not because of your continued goodness, but because of the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. If he saved you by his blood, as it says in verse 7 here, then the power of his blood will also keep you eternally in God's favor. Again, not because of you, but because of Jesus. Those who are in the light have their sins cleansed by the blood of Christ. Praise be to God. That's the gospel message. That's the hope that sinners have. Sinners like you and me, brothers and sisters. That's the hope that we have of being right before God. And only that hope. Look at verse 8. John goes on. Another if-then statement. This is another evidence of an unresolved sin, sin problem. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if we, if we say we have no sin, if we say, if we claim that all of our sins has, have been forgiven by the blood of Christ... And yet we're still walking in the darkness. We're still practicing sin regularly and unashamedly. Then not only do we lie to other people, we lie to ourselves. We are self-deceived. This, I think, is pretty self-explanatory, but let me just point something out here. Those who claim to have no sin because they are in the light, but who still actually walk in the darkness, they don't just lie to others, they lie to themselves. The scary thing is, most of the time you don't realize it. Most of the time you don't even notice this about yourselves. People's internal, moral, and spiritual compass just gets out of whack, all turned around, and they can't even see what they can't see. They can't even see that they are deceived. It's been said that when a person gets to the point where they believe their own lies... They can no longer distinguish any truth within themselves or outside of themselves. What a truly terrible thing. And yet, y'all know people like this. It happens regularly. Here again is why the caring rebu rebuke 
of a brother or sister in the church is actually the best thing that can happen in that kind of a situation. There's a tendency within each of us, each one of us to seek out people who are just going to verify what we're doing is right. Right? We want to surround ourselves with people who just pump us up. Even if we're wrong, they're like, oh, you're fine. That's, the, this, that's this kind of desire that we have, this tendency that we have. That's not truth. That person in reality is not really your friend. If that's all that they do. Because a real friend, if they see you in error, is not just going to continue letting you walk in it. They're going to stop you short and say, wait a second. That's not right. I love you enough to tell you that. That's the kind of friend we need, friends. That's the kind of friend we need to be to other people. There's more here, I think, in verse 8, though. The person who says they have no sin is really saying they have no need for Jesus. The person who says that their sins have been forgiven but are content to live in ungodliness... That person is self-deceived and in reality, they just willingly reject the sacrifice of Christ. That's the epitome of arrogance. But we hear it all the time. A third evidence of an unresolved sin problem is found, jump down to verse 10. You actually make God out to be a liar. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If a person lies to others and a person lies to themselves, you can guess they're eventually going to start telling lies about God too. They make God a liar when they claim to be without sin or when they deny the depraved nature of mankind at all, saying that we are inherently good even though the Bible teaches that we're not. Why? Because God has put forth Jesus Christ as the only propitiation for our sins. And if we say otherwise, we're making God out to be a liar. We also make God out to be a liar when we claim to be without sin, but we still persist in it. Now, maybe you're listening this morning and maybe you feel guilty of one or more of these three lies, these three things. We lie, we're lying to others by the way that we live. We're lying to ourselves by the way that we think. And we're lying about God. There's hope. There's hope and it's found here. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the hope that we have for the person who recognizes their sin, confesses it. Verse 9 tells us that God is faithful, not just to sweep those things under the rug and forget about it, but to actually forgive them and cleanse that person from all unrighteousness. And it's that word all is not a mistake. It's not an English addition in there. It's meant to be read. All unrighteousness, every bit of it, he's faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from. This sounds an awful lot like justification by grace through faith to me. Right here. You might be a church member. You might have been playing the church game for a while. But maybe you've never confessed 
your sins and repented to God. God is faithful to hear your prayer, to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness today, now. You simply go to him in faith, believing that the blood of Christ washes away your every sin and cleanses you before God. There are those in our world, at every stage of it, who would try to hide and excuse their sin. The Bible calls them a liar. There are those who acknowledge and confess their wickedness, their sins. The Bible says that they are forgiven. We cannot be washed, forgiven, or cleansed on our own. We mentioned this back in our Ecclesiastes studies. There's no one here that's going to fix the brokenness of our world. And for us to to think that would happen is like putting 30 toddlers in a room and coming back at the end of the day and thinking everything is going to be fine. It's not going to work. Thinking that some man-made product or philosophy in this life is going to fix what's wrong is not going to happen. We cannot fix what's wrong within ourselves. We must plead and rely on someone outside of us to fix it. To bring us back to pay our debt that we could not pay on our own. And God has given, God has offered up His perfect and only Son for everyone who believes. Now, Jesus Christ, the righteous, He stands on behalf of rescued sinners as our advocate. Chapter 2 Next week, John David is going to be preaching, and he's going to talk about Jesus Christ as our advocate. Isn't this so backwards from our culture, though? This is backwards from what we're told all the time. The thing to do in our world is to say, everybody sins. It's not that big a deal. It'll be all right. It's not that big a deal. Everybody does it. Therefore, because everybody does it, apparently that makes it okay. This kind of behavior is expected and acceptable because, guess what? Nobody wants to take responsibility for their own actions. No one wants to be held accountable. Confessing sin? That's seen as weak. That's seen as foolish because it makes you vulnerable. It makes you accountable. But there's no other way to be made clean and be made whole than by confessing our sin, repenting of it, and turning to Jesus Christ in faith. I pray that that would be you today. I pray that you would hear his voice, that you would see these unresolved sin problems, the underlying condition that we have, not try to fix it on your own. You cannot be better. You cannot be good enough to make God all right with you. The only way that God can justify your sin is by putting it on Jesus on the cross. And in faith, he's done that for you already. I'd love to talk with you more about this. If you have questions, if you're not sure, if something's been confusing to you, stop me afterwards, call me this week. Don't just let it go. These words are for us. We don't want to be caught in lies, brothers and sisters. We don't want our lifestyles to be proving that what we say is wrong, that what we say is a lie. 
We want to be out there so busy walking the walk that we're not worried about talking the talk. Let's pray together. Lord, there are no words meaningful enough to thank you sufficiently for the gift of Jesus Christ. We are riddled with sin from the start. There's nothing about us that would deserve your grace, and yet you give it freely to everyone who believes. Lord, help our unbelief this morning. If, if we've been walking in ways that are contrary to your truth, we ask for your forgiveness. Set us on a new and better path. A path of righteousness that only you can keep us on. Lord, help us to walk in truth. Walk in the light as you are in the light. Lord, if we've just been playing church, I pray that you would wake us up to the reality of sin and our need for repentance and forgiveness. Thank you for your kindness, Lord, and using your word this morning. Thank you for kindness and using your people to say the hard things that we need to hear when we need to hear it, to keep us walking in the light. Lord, I pray that we would love each other that way, that well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week.